Hello and welcome to A Biological Revolution. I'm Jeff McFadden. One of the problems that we're having um, that we associate with, with uh, what we call global warming is water. Uh, water's become a, a problem already and it's going to become more of a problem. Uh, our water problem occurs in, in two ways. We have droughts and we have floods. and uh, the the way to understand that the way to understand the the uh, change in in the water uh, weather the water water climate is to understand that global warming weather is just like the old weather except it's faster because we have more energy in in the system and energy equals speed you know the way way you make your car go faster is you push down your gas pedal the gas pedal lets more uh, petroleum into your cylinders and when you set them on fire they make more heat and that's more energy and your car goes faster same principle okay so so um the ground dries faster right now i'm i'm in uh, uh northwest missouri and we've had a we had a very wet winter uh and we have had a reasonably wet spring uh but uh, I observed that the ground dries much faster. You know, you, we've got saturated ground. Used to be, you went from saturated ground to dried ground in a, you know, after spring rains, and it was a slow process uh, as the ground dried. But now, because the wind is on average faster than it used to be, um, the uh, and the temperature is on average warmer than it used to be, both of those things drive evaporation. And so the, the water's in the ground and the more active atmosphere with more heat in it pulls the water up faster and, and the higher energy atmosphere can hold more water because energy is what holds water up in the air. That's how it's not warm air magically holds more water. It's just more energy in the air. We measure it as temperature, so we call it warm. But it's just energy, and it can, instead of interacting with our thermometer, it can interact with all these water molecules. And water molecules, you know, weigh more than, than air molecules, so they would fall out of the air. Gravity makes them want to fall out of the air. But, but a lot energy can keep them up there, so that's what happens. And uh, so we have more energy in, in everything, and therefore we have more water in the air. And therefore when it falls down, it falls down faster, which means we get more in a shorter time. None of this is news. Everybody knows this. I, I'm just kind of uh, uh, laying the groundwork here. So the upshot of it all is that the ground dries faster than it used to, and, and it rains faster than it used to, and we have bigger storms than we used to. And I don't know what the high-energy industrial system, the, the preferred system, uh, proposes to deal with this issue. I haven't heard any proposals from them to deal with this issue. I will give you a proposal to deal with this issue and I can guarantee that it would work. Um, we'll still have it a little rougher than we have but we can make it much 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 easier on ourselves. And we can do this with, by applying biology to our problem, by applying the life of the earth to our problem. Step one is, and these steps are simultaneous. You don't do one of them, and when you're done, you do the other one. You, these are actions which take place in, in different spots on the earth at the hands of different people simultaneously. But it has to be agreed on so that a lot of people do it, and there will have to be some structural changes to get there. But basically, this won't cost any particular buddy, anything, it just, you know, this will be just this sort of money that it costs to run your everyday bureaucracies. So first thing you do, one thing you do is you put beavers back in all the creeks in North America that will support beavers because that's where they were when the white people got here. They were literally in all the creeks nationwide. The first fortunes made on this country were made by people who extracted those beavers from the water and turned 
their hides into a commercial product and ship them to Europe. Kansas City, one of the founding, Kansas City's made up of three or four uh, river bottom settlements that, that all started more or less uh, independently at the same time back in the early 1800s. But one of them was the Choteau family. They, the Choteau family was, was, was uh, fur traders. And they built a big fur trading spot down uh, in uh, what is now Northeast Kansas City. We have Choteau Boulevard, you know. And, and uh, what they did was they made the fortune that founded Kansas City by turning live beavers into dollars. Except that it was a one-way street. They, were just, they just extracted all the beavers like we extract all of everything. They extracted all they possibly could. And the only beavers that got away were the ones that lived in the big rivers. And beavers that live in big rivers are slightly different in habit than beavers that live in small rivers. I'm, I don't know whether uh, you can take beavers out of big rivers and put them in small rivers and have them satisfactorily adapt or not. I'm not sure. I'm, a lot of what they do is instinctive, so I'd say the odds would be in your favor. But beavers in big rivers don't have to build dams. The river never goes away. And they dig uh, burrows up into the bank below the high water line. And they burrow back into the bank and, and then their homes are up above above the high water line in the in the mud. But I'm, in Kansas City, you know, I grew up in Kansas City. And there's a river called the Carr River that runs through downtown Kansas City butts into uh, the uh, uh, Missouri River right at, at the uh, upstream end of the major downtown of downtown Kansas City, Missouri. And really pretty much where the main, main downtown of downtown Kansas City, Kansas is too. These two towns were built on two hills diagonally across the a uh, junction of the Caw River and the Missouri River. And uh, up river on the Caw River, up into the industrial bottomland, there's uh, Colgate Palmolive had a plant up there, and I don't know what all. You know, they just make stuff. There's been, you know, bread bread uh, factories and stuff. Um, but it's a real commercial river. I mean, you know, it's it's a it's an old, look, dead-looking river in the middle of an industrial city. And, and I was sitting, uh, there's an island down there, and I was sitting on the downstream end of that island one night, Oh, I don't know, 40 years ago, 45 years ago. It's not been recently, but um, it hasn't changed significantly. The environment hasn't changed any. And I was sitting on the downstream end of this island. It's about 12th Street, Kansas City, Kansas Streets in the Car River, uh, looking out over the nighttime. And a beaver came up, upstream. Two of them came up. And they hung in the current about... I don't know, 12, 15 feet away from me. I was sitting on the bank, and they were in the in the uh, river. And rivers are easier to stay stationary in than lakes are because on a river, you can point yourself up current, and you can apply an amount of energy that's equal to uh, what the river's got. In other words, you swim or run your outboard motor the same speed as a river current, and you can just stay in exactly one spot. You don't blow around like you do on a lake. You're just, boom, you're there. You're stuck in that spot. It's cool. So these two beavers came up, and they and they, they surfaced a little ways off stream from me, and they hung there in a the current, and they looked at me, and I looked at them, and we looked at each other, and it was pretty cool. And after a while, I don't know how long, one of them gave his tail the legendary beaver slap curve, whap, and they were gone, poof, and I never saw them again. But those beavers lived right in the middle of downtown Kansas City. The big rivers still have beavers in them. And so the beavers are living, but we're not gaining any benefit from them. Because what all those beaver ponds did was they, they made rapid flooding almost impossible. Because no matter where it rained in the whole country, all the water running downhill had to go through this beaver dam. And then it had to go through this beaver dam and then it had to go through this beaver dam and it eventually got downstream but it didn't get down there all at once you know and the thing that would sweep 
uh, semi-trailer trucks off a, off a bridge like it does now. So you can cure flash floods. You can almost totally eliminate flash flood deaths by a mass program of restocking beavers in uh, fresh water of the nation. And that will have a couple other effects. If you look at uh, any creek up here in Missouri, you know, if you happen to be in, you know, the around the Kansas City area, you know, St. Louis, anywhere in between the two states, uh, go down to to anywhere above anywhere above the Ozarks. The Ozarks is all rocks. There's no dirt down there. It's just all rocks. It's a pile of rocks. Some of them are very small and look almost like dirt, but it's basically rocks. But north up here, we've got soil and uh, so you go to any creek, anywhere, uh, go out on somebody's farm, drive down a road and stop at, at the first little colored bridge you see, get out and look, and the creek's about, 20, the water's about 20 feet down from you, 10 feet down from you, no less than 10 feet ever. And this is not counting the height of the bridge. This is just how deep that water's laying in the ground. We own a pond that runs across our place, I mean a creek that runs across our place. And, uh, it's it's about ten feet down from from the bank, you know. And if I mean if I happen to to uh, crowd that too close with a tractor, I could die there. People do die in places like this all the time because the soft bank caves away. You know, if you get up too close to the bank, and it's about ten feet down, and and that's far enough for a tractor to turn upside down. You know, and people, it's. But if we had beavers, the water line would be exactly even with the earth line. There would be no drop. You could, you could, a, a frog could hop across the prairie and hop into the pond and never have to jump up or down. It would just be there, miraculously be water. Because this, the running water without any barricades over it that we have here is an erosive force. It, it, it has to be, you know, it wears the dirt away. And while this is not great soil where we are, it's decent soil. You know, there's there's uh, some life in it still. People haven't killed it all yet completely, uh, most of it. And it, but it, it it's easily eroded. You know, I mean, you can go down here with a shovel and you can dig a hole in it, and that's easy. And the same thing, the the rainwater comes roaring through here, ninety to nothing after one of these gully washers, and. Uh, there's nothing between between it and the, and the Gulf of Mexico except more ever slowly increasing streams. There's no barricades to speak of. And this is how we have done what we call flood control. And it's to, the objective is to get the water through and out as fast as possible. And if you look at any commercial, virtually any commercial farm, not quite any, there's still a few others. If you look at any big farm, in Missouri, and it's got a creek across it. The creek has been made just straight as an arrow. It's called channelized. They've built two levees that run alongside the creek, and it's just absolutely straight as an arrow down to the next river. Uh, the theory being that, that the best thing you can possibly do with this water is get rid of it as fast as you can and pump some up out of the ground to water your crops. And so we have these horrendous flash floods because we're moving water, we're moving a larger quantity of water out of the soil in less time into the atmosphere where there's more energy to, to accumulate it into a storm. You know, you look at a thunderstorm, that what makes that cloud big, high and flat top? That's, that's the rising energy inside that thing. And, and it's spontaneously moving to an area of lower concentration. And uh, at the same time, it's building up for just one terrific golly washer. And we get them. I mean, you know, the, it, everybody knows if it rains harder than it used to. And so uh, we can't stop the rains harder all at once. We've, we've made that by accident, and now we're stuck with it. But we don't have to let it eat our... our lives, what we can do is we can get beavers and spread them through all the creeks everywhere. I, I know I'm going back over this, but it's so simple and yet it is so 
devilishly complicated. The beavers can stop the floods. They not only can stop the floods, they will stop the floods if we let them. All we have to do is install them. We don't have to operate them. We don't have to maintain them. We don't have to buy fuel for them. All we have to do is install them. If you want to think of this as an industrial process, if it's wrong somehow to think of it as being that Earth knows how to fix herself and we should help her, if you want to think of this industrial process, we just go out and we, and we source some beavers. And we handle them in such a way as to not reduce their value as living creatures. We protect our investment and we install these beavers in every creek in North America. I'm pretty soon we don't ever have another flash flood. We still have floods, but that water has to go through every beaver dam on every upland creek, on every middle-sized river before it can get to the big rivers and rise. And it'll get there and it'll rise, but it won't come roaring down there and surprise everybody and catch everybody with all their cattle in the fields. They'll see it coming. They'll know it's happening. They'll have time to move their cattle out of the fields. Why can't we do this? There's a reason that this is... Okay, we know why the beavers left, because they cashed them all in. But we know, as per my anecdote earlier and from other observations, you know, ask anybody that goes down on any big river. The Missouri River's got a zillion beavers in it, and all its big tributaries that you can go up in a John boat have got a big a zillion beavers in them. They're everywhere. You know, the beavers are out there like, like sparrows in a city, um, in the big rivers. But they can't come up into the little water because we farm every square foot in the largest industrial high production system in the world. And we, our, our agriculture industry cannot function as it does and accept the inevitability of beaver uh, ponds and work around them. Beaver ponds make the, make the, the uh, creek ecosystem much wider. So you've got a creek, and you know, down here in, 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 in Tom Watersfield someplace, and it's six feet wide, and it's as straight as an arrow, and it goes into the Missouri River. And uh, if you put beavers in there and let them have it, you know, planted, planted willows, you'd have to plant willows along there because beavers have to eat trees, and willows are one of their favorite, and they grow like weeds. You could just drive up the river. You could drive up all these tributaries in a in a uh, donkey cart, sticking sticking uh, uh, willows in the dirt, and pretty soon you'd have enough of a of a woodland ecosystem to support a family of beavers. So, and any creek that's got wooded spots, you know, you go to the wooded spots. You work with what you've got, but. The beavers, the first thing they'll do is build their dams, which right there, immediately, the creek's going to get um, wider, and the ground alongside the creek is going to get softer because beaver ponds recharge groundwater and aquifers. And one of the big problems we're having with water right now is that... Uh, uh, we're pumping all the water out of the aquifers. It, one of the reasons farming is getting more expensive is because the farther you have to raise water, the more it costs. Raising water from down to up has long been one of the curses of mankind. And uh, the first steam engine ever put commercially to use was put to use raising water out of a mine because mines fill with water and you have to constantly move the water out. And this was just a huge problem. And the first steam engine put to use, like I said, was raising water out of that, out of a mine. And so they have pumped water, they have raised water. Um, and now that the aquifers have gone from 
you know, fall in the surface of the aquifers have fallen two, three, four hundred feet. And the cost of raising water is, is, you know, per gallon per foot. And so if you want to raise more gallons, that's going to cost you more. And if you want to raise the same number of gallons more feet, that's going to cost you more. But if you have a, a rap, more rapid transpiration, that the plants lose water to the atmosphere faster because of the higher energy atmosphere, then you're going to have to pump more water. Or otherwise, the plants will suffer. You're not at a break-even point. You're at a point where their demand is growing. And because of our actions. So, beaver dams, that this water, like on my little creek over here, that roars through my property, making an ever deeper trench in the in the once arable bottom ground. Um, if it had beaver dams, would raise the water level right up to ground level. So in the middle there, it'd be ten feet deep, and they'd start and and that would make it wider because the creek, you know, the, the banks aren't totally vertical there. They're, you know, a sharp, deep V, but the deep, taller it got, got closer to the surface, the uh, wider it would get. And they would eat the trees they could reach without getting off the bank. And then the next thing they do is they say, well, I need to move a little farther to get to some more trees. So they dig uh, canals. So a beaver pond isn't just a pond. It's this whole ecosystem in the valley, and there's canals that go out, and those canals provide habitats for various kinds of frogs and various kinds of bugs and they provide watering for various kinds of creatures and they provide uh, habitats for waterfowl and um, but you can't plow that ground anymore and you see our agriculture system says we must plow every square foot so we can have more corn so that we can hound our legislators to make laws that we can put more corn in the gasoline because we've got so much corn that we can't use it. So we can't have beavers. And if we did have beavers, you know, I live on this little dirt gravel country road out here in the middle of no place, and there's a little, you know, the creek that crosses my pond, my property crosses the, the uh, road down the way here, and uh, if the beavers moved into this, this is a way upland creek. Uh, uh, this is a seasonal creek, and, and um, if the beavers moved in here, it would go from seasonal to permanent, because that's what beavers do. Um, but they might also flood this road down here. And the way this works, having roads, is since we have a road, you have to be able to drive a semi-trailer truck at 80,000 pounds down it because there's farms down here and you can't conceivably think that you could harvest an industrial field and not haul that grain out of there. You don't think they're hauling these out of here instead of baker pickup trucks, do you? So you can't build a cheap wooden bridge over a beaver pond to get in and out. So all of a sudden, if the beavers, God forbid, should, should back water up across our road, it would be a disaster. Which somehow, at the same time, we must understand that this is all one system. The water is all one water. Okay. The question is really not about the beavers. We're talking about the water. Our aquifers are getting empty. We know that. We're having a huge amount of flash floods. We know that. And beavers could and would fix that. And I don't think you'd find any re respectable scientist who would dispute that. Uh, I haven't read any research but I don't think that any respectable scientist would dispute uh, my statement that a nation, uh, if our nation's waterways were filled with beavers, we would virtually have no flash floods in the United States. 
And, uh, I mean, flash floods are costing us a fortune. Flash floods in Nebraska this year killed thousands of livestock. And there's so many people to point at and to blame. But really, it's all one thing that that was our industrial system at work. We have created this large-scale uh, system, and when all the fields are, you know, 20, 10 miles away, all the fields are a mile long, two miles long, and uh, there's no fences, and there's no tree lines, and there's no creeks, and there's no beavers, the only way you can have a flood is flood all of it at once with no warning. It's not like that was a surprise. I mean, everybody was surprised, but that's because they didn't consider how how these things must work. We're only talking about gravity here. We're talking about gravity, and we're talking about about all the stuff I'm talking about is known by researchers. They know all about how turbulence in a fluid slows down. Uh, the the forward motion and consumes energy because they study you know on a on a, uh, a container ship going across the ocean we know that if that if we design that container ship just right one of the things you if you ever see a picture one out of the water they got this big bulbous nose this thing that sticks out in front of them it's literally called a bulbous bow and the reason it's there is because they discovered that it reduces the turbulence of the water as it runs along the sides of the ship, and turbulence uh, slows the ship. And turbulence makes it so that they have to use more diesel fuel to keep up the same speed. So turbulence consumes energy. And this is, this is a fact that, that no industrial user in the United States would ignore for a moment. But we know for sure we could we could have turbulence created in every waterway in this country, and our only cost of doing it would be encouraging Habitat for and introducing beavers and just letting them go. This is, we, we must, as a people, we must begin to think about the ways the earth would like to, to fix what we have going here um, because much of our problem is because of alterations we've made in the earth in my lifetime and in uh, since the uh, uh, colonists came to this this continent uh, the beavers like I said that began right when the colonists got to this continent so that's all these modifications have added up all the problems vert, most of the problems that we see are exacerbated by, if not directly caused by, all the alterations. And we look at one thing, we see, we see that it's, the temperatures are higher, and we say global warming is causing this. And that's only part of it. We could, re we could reduce flash flood losses almost to zero nationwide without solving the temperature problem by a single degree, by a tenth of a degree. We could do that. We could literally alleviate our flash flood and flooding losses nationwide even while the amount of carbon being, ex uh, I can't think of the word, squirted out into the atmosphere um, continues to go up because it's still going up. Everybody talks about global warming, but it's like, you know, that's just a joke. It's literally a joke. Nobody, nobody, nobody has a plan that says, okay, tomorrow we do this. It's all what we're, all the plans are descriptions of the end goal. Okay. They, everybody describes to me what America will look like after we're done with the conversion. Nobody, but nobody, is going to tell you what to do next to make it better tomorrow 
or even to get closer to your plan because you got to wait for the government. We don't have to wait for the government. If states wanted to, they could introduce beavers. I tried for all I was worth to get my state in Missouri to uh, help me introduce beavers on my property. It's against the law. You can't do it. They say, you know, if you've got habitat for beavers, they'll show, they'll show up. Well, yeah, but I'm almost 20, now I'm probably closer to 30 miles of river that runs directly through agricultural fields and bottoms to get to me. I'm about the first stop above heavy agriculture. So what they're telling me is that two different beavers, not genetically related, are both going to swim 35 miles maybe upstream through places where if they built dams, somebody would come out and dynamite them. And they're going to show up on my place. And I will grant you that that is theoretically possible. But I would say that uh, it's not realistic. So, you know, what we have is that our large-scale, high-speed, high-energy industrial system is not compatible with an absolutely free resource that would solve one of our major and deadly problems. The two systems are not compatible. And my proposal since I started this, this, web, uh, this uh, podcast has been that the only system that we can use and survive is the biological one. Because everything we do with it, everything we do with it, it requires installation only. The only two things we have to do with the beavers is introduce them and not kill them and not t uh, bulldoze their habitat. That's all we have to do. Introduce them and not ruin the world that they live in. And they will do these things for us. They will recharge our groundwater. They will virtually halt our uh, uh, flash flood uh, destruction. They will capture uh, eroded water from immediately upstream and turn it into uh, uh, rich, farmable bottomland. But we have to be willing to farm in a fashion that allows us to use the bottomland after the beavers move out of it and farm it until the creek is worn down and the beavers want to come back and then move down to the one they just moved out of. Because it's all a system. We know for sure, we know absolutely without dispute, that there used to be a neutral carbon cycle. Now, people want to tell you, industrialists want to tell you, that they can magically introduce certain out-of-balance, centralized locations of, of uh, carbon sequestering life, like forests, okay? And the, by doing that, they can magically fix everything else they're killing on the earth. But they're lying to you. In the first place, they won't do it. And in the second place, it won't work. Because the biological systems, we know exactly for sure what size the biological systems have to be to create a neutral uh, carbon cycle. They have to be as big as they can possibly be on planet Earth because that's how they were when the carbon cycle was neutral. And what we must do as a race, and I mean the whole human race everywhere on earth, what we must do is we must come to the realization that portions of us, tribes of us, and societies of us have had from time to time and place to place, but not everywhere all the time, we have to come to the realization that we must work with the world, that we must find ways in which by making the world richer, 
we can address our needs. And I've just told you one. Beaver ponds hold fish. If, if every creek in America had beaver ponds on it, every household within walking distance of a creek could eat fish from time to time for free. This is not utopia. I'm not telling you this is utopia. I'm telling you this is a that we really are biological creatures who evolved here on planet Earth and who whose needs can be met by planet Earth because we know they were. What it doesn't guarantee is it doesn't guarantee to be able to meet our wants. And what we have to do is figure out how to want what we need. Because we need it anyway, and we might as well want it. It's not like we can't... People don't just... Auto, people are not born wanting to golf. People 400 years ago dreamed idly of flying like a bird. But being in a big silver box with your knees up under your chin is not flying like a bird. Oh, look, we've always wanted to fly. Yeah, this ain't flying. This is it. Put you in a metal box, shake you for, for four hours, tell, tell you to get out and believe this is Baltimore. It may be. How can I tell? I didn't come here. I didn't see any of it. I, think of what someone the day before the Industrial Revolution needed to have to be comfortable and to have a good life. And then think, okay, if we had tried, we could have started at that point on that day and we could have thought of ways to make our lives more comfortable, more rewarding, and more civilized, if you will, that didn't include going fast. Because really this whole thing is about speed. The reason the scale has to be so large is because if you're going to farm at 40 miles an hour, you know, you can't farm half an acre. You just can't. It won't work. So you got to have, you know, if you got a tractor that'll go that fast, you got to have that much area. If you got a tractor that'll pull a, a 40 foot implement, you got to have pretty big fields. And the big fields did not come first. The tractors came first. The day the tractors got here, men were out in the fields with horses, mules in America, in most of the world with donkeys, but we've always had to be hot dogs. So we had to have horses because horses were, you know, bigger than donkeys and they were better than donkeys and they were faster than donkeys and you bet. But but horses are cool. Don't let me get don't get me wrong. I like horses. I worked horses. Um so we were out here with horses. These guys were out here with horses. And my grandfather when I drove up to their farm in a Studebaker automobile. And he said, hi, I'm Roy, and I'm with the International, I'm with the, with the, the uh, uh, McCormick Tractor Company. And he was just a heck of a nice guy. And there was a pretty good chance by the time he left, that guy would own the tractor. And the uh, McCormick Tractor Company would own another team of horses, which they would send to the slaughterhouse, because that's how this worked. The guys already had the horses. They had to get value for the horses to buy the tractor had to have trade-in value so they did and uh, the horses had to be sent to the slaughterhouse because if the horses had been put on the market you'd have been able to buy a good team of workhorses for a third of the price of a tractor nobody had been dumb enough to buy them and everybody bought the tractors and everybody was happy until about 10 years later when they didn't have any baby tractors running around the farms and then Things got out of hand, and we've really never gotten it back, and I don't believe my grandfather saw that coming. I think he honestly believed in what he was doing. Anyway, we could fix a lot with beavers. We could also fix a lot with trees. We know for sure that the wind has to blow faster because there's more energy out there. And um, 
the energy it, it, it okay now I'm not going back there I've done that 40 times today I'm sorry the wind is blowing faster and once again it's the same thing you do with the water we have we have a fluid which is moving at a higher rate than it was before and we would like to slow that rate down because we find it destructive and what we have to do is we have to introduce turbulence and the way you introduce turbulence is you plant a bunch of trees and if you're smart you plant a bunch of trees in ways that they all provide food you plant well of course most of them will anyway that's what they do you know that's how this world works everything that lives here provides food for everything else that lives here which provides food for everything else that lives here and it goes around and around and it never runs out it's the only perpetual motion machine that really works and that's because it's not a perpetual motion machine because non-stop 24 hours a day for the last five billion years at least energy from the sun has fallen upon this planet to provide the motive force for everything that had to happen and the planet when it drew together into a globe drew together so tight that the inside of it melted with the concentrated heat we've talked about how you can increase temperature by concentrating anything in a smaller and smaller space and the total amount of heat energy inside it will be more concentrated so when they concentrated all these these rocks and stardust and stuff down butterflies i'm sure there were butterflies anyway when they concentrated all this down into a globe they i say they this is just a way of of, ex of expressing that which is not known we know what happened gravity caused all these particles to attract one another and the ones that were closest together felt it the most and they attract the most but see i already anthropomorphized them anyway when the globe formed it the gravity was so great and the pressure was so great that the inside of it melted and turned into fire and it still is so so this thing we live on you know up somewhere down there under your feet there's this this big glowing ball of molten rock steel and everything else a lot of it is iron in fact and it's glowing there's a pretty good chance that's where life came from originally was from the internal heat that's a side story anyway the earth is not a closed system it is an externally powered system but what the things here do with the power what the biological systems of earth do with the received power is they provide a system in which absolutely everything that lives here has all of its needs provided for by the system and that can include us and we don't have to be naked savages for it to include us we're not what we have to be is we have to be gardeners of our earth we have to say i look around you and i see that you need things to be uh, in greater health so that you can better care for me and my needs and one of the things we would do is we'd plant trees in in we'd plant trees along fences and i'm not talking one row wide i'm talking maybe 50 feet of trees maybe 20 feet of trees and we would deal with it most of the fences out here function well no that's not true a lot of the fences function as property lines others function to keep livestock in but um i don't see it getting rid of them very soon although it would be ideal if we could but that's that's far down the road but we need trees not in some big place we do need trees in big places like for instance we need the whole amazon rainforest we need it all we can't afford for people to turn that into a, a cattle pasture because we're all going to die but we can't get there right now and we can't stop them right now and we're here okay and right now today we can make this place healthier stronger richer and, and better able to care for us and as we did so our systems our our everyday life within this industrial system would become a little bit more robust 
if we cut down the flash floods, then life would be more robust. And, and you know, Nashville and towns all over the country periodically just get blasted with a, a flash flood. And we can't stop the rain and we can't stop the water from rising. We've, that's, we can address that, but that's a long-term issue. The short-term issue is to try to get it to where the water rises uh, an inch every four hours instead of an inch every four minutes. And we can do that just by putting beavers in all the creeks. We can cut down the wind by putting trees between everything, making all the fields a whole lot smaller. But th this agriculture that we have now, as it is, in my opinion, is not tenable. I don't believe that the planet can survive uh, industrial American agriculture. I think the wider it spreads, the uh, worse our problems get, the more, uh, just the more in danger we become of, of the ecological catastrophe. This is not global warming. This is an ecological catastrophe. And if we view it, then we can address the issues with things that might work. And I, there's no possibility that we can go on living like we live. That's the objective of the high-speed, high-energy, uh, large-scale solutions, the, the electric cars and the, and the uh, solar panels and the wind generators. The objective of that whole plan is that we go on living just like we do now. And the AOC can still fly back and forth between New York and Washington, D.C., if she does. I don't know if she does. I just made that up. Um, that, but, but people, that's, this is how we do it. We just have all this speed. We have all this energy. In the long run, that just cannot continue. I know it's fun, but the systems within which we live are dying. That's an empirical fact. I'm not being an extremist. It's an empirical fact. I mean, it, we know for sure that, that the reefs in the oceans are dying, and we know for sure that the, uh, I can't remember what they call them, the, the plankton, the invi almost invisible things that swim in the ocean that everything else on the whole planet lives on. We know they're dying. Okay, everything on the planet lives on them. You cannot kill the bottom thing on your planetary food chain and go on. It's, it's not, it, the discussion is not honest. That's what bothers me. The discussion is not honest. People will not say, yes, this is the world I live on. And all the world must work in order for me to live on it. People continue to say, oh no, we can live fine without it. I got a, a, a response to a tweet on this topic the other day, Mars. It's all said Mars. Yeah, right. Think about that for a minute. Um, all seven billion of us on Mars uh, under a glass roof where the wind never blows and the sun never shines. And it's dark as a dungeon way down in the mine and anybody who wants to go there is a lunatic. I want to uh, go a little deeper into trees and water management. And I confess to you here that, that I am moving away from uh, a reliance on, on real science and uh, research and going into the land of the anecdotal. Um, and, uh, but I'm not going to dispute science. This is just what I'm talking about now is not proven by anyone. I think you'd find some at least uh, respectable scientists who would say, yeah, this is believable, but nobody's ever proven it. Um, anyway, but the theory is that wooded areas create their own uh, macroclimates or microclimates. Uh, trees transpire a lot of water. They, they suck water up out of their roots and, and it transpires out through their veins, or I mean through their leaves. It's the same way we work except we put it in through our mouth and it goes downhill. But uh, they do that and they're really big creatures and so they uh, 
exude a lot of of uh, O2 during the day, and they exude a lot of uh, 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 water vapor during the day, and, and they create a little a little microclimate around themselves. And there's anecdotal evidence, and I don't know of anybody that if somebody's researched it, I haven't read it, and I haven't looked real hard, but there's anecdotal evidence that those tree uh, microclimates can be associated with more rain in their immediate area, that they that they generate little clouds and, and have little rains. I can't prove this. But I would say that given that we already know that we have wind damage and that we have the wind causing excessively rapid uh, both erosion and drying, you know, water uh, cycle, if we put up trees just every so often and create uh, uh, turbulence in the wind, it will have to slow it down, and as it loses energy, things uh, that it's carrying will have to fall out. So around tree lines, uh, that's why the fences in the, you know, in the in the uh, dust bowl pictures you've seen where where there's these fences and just about the top two or three inches of the fence post is sticking up out of the dust, and it kind of falls away like a snowdrift, as it, like the edge of a snowdrift. Look as you look across the where the field used to be. The reason all that dust is where that fence was because the fence created turbulence and that consumed the energy out of the wind. So the energy no longer, the wind, the air no longer had enough energy to hold all these dirt particles. So they fell out, and they fell out right there. That's how this whole process works. So what we do is, if we put up trees, they create much more complex turbulence than a simple barbed wire fence, and they will cause more of the excess energy that we have cycling around the surface as wind, the trees will absorb that energy. The energy will have to be transferred into the trees and they'll, they'll receive the energy by shaking in the wind and sometimes they'll receive the energy by breaking branches off and dropping them on the ground. But if you think about it, you know, you go by someplace and you look and there's a, a branch as big as, as your thigh laying on the ground and you think, well, I wasn't strong enough to do that. I couldn't have done that, even if I'd have tried real hard. But the wind transferred so much energy into that branch that the whole branch couldn't hold, couldn't sustain that much energy, and it broke off. And when it did that, the energy went through transformational processes, which actually removed it as for some of it from being in the free energy pool in the system. Because we have too much temperature means we have too much energy, and we have too much carbon means we're catching it, but that's a different issue. Um, now we have the energy, and we have to find ways to uh, cause it to to dissipate into in ways that are not too destructive. Breaking a big branch off a tree is kind of destructive. But you know that you can can make a significant difference with enough tree lines. And uh, this area where I live used to be what's called a savanna, which meant that, that all the all the hilltops would have been grass and all the hillsides and, and uh, uh, creek bottoms would have been forests and beaver ponds um, in the creek bottoms. But uh, now it's all, it's, you know, all, all the forests are gone and it's, it's something different. The whole system is broken. I keep coming back to this. And we know, we have enough knowledge to, to repair huge pieces of it, huge functional pieces of it. This is, I'm talking about an engineering project here. I'm not talking about a pipe dream. I'm talking about ways to engineer our way out of the mess we're in using the materials at hand in a non-destructive fashion so that we don't have to mine them or extract them. It's the same principle as mining something. You know, we, we go out and we mine to get lithium and cobalt and we combine them together into batteries and everybody has a cell phone, including the one I'm recording this on. And that's one way to interact with the world. It's, that's one way. But you can also uh, alter it in ways that accrue to your benefit, but uh, 
instead of extracting the the value out of the earth, you direct the value on the earth in such a fashion that you get from it more value. The difference is the value system we have now is how many dollars can the guy in front get? Okay, that's the whole system. Every Everything about what we do is based on how can the guy in front who owns the corporation get more money. And I defy anybody who believes capitalism works to to tell me how that could be other than possible. His objective as a capitalist, if there if there is no honor and there is no society and there is no human and there is no limit and we are just capitalists and the only two places you can be on earth are a capitalist or a communist and if those brackets exist and we are capitalists then the only possible rational action would be for the people who own the most to do the most to increase what they own. Isn't that how capitalism works? It's rational self-interest to want to provide for yourself. And we have defined it as being no difference between the rational self-interest that I have to sit here in this 240-square-foot house with the ceiling fan lazily spinning above me and be warm, well-fed, satisfied with my life and in love with my partner in life and with a very good dog sitting beside me that it would be more rational for me to be trying to get more money because a rational actor pursues self-benefit and self-benefit can only be defined in money. And I say to you, my friends, that that is a disease that is killing our society. We cannot manage every system on the entire planet Earth so that the richest 1,000 people on Earth get richer and continue to have an Earth for your children or their children. I want to comment here, when I speak of the end of the world, I, I want to be clear that I understand that, that the Earth is going to go on. I believe if we had a nuclear winter and the whole shooting match, that life would go on. Uh, there are, we know for sure that there are microbes that live in uh, volcanic steam vents in the bottom of the ocean. They've never seen the sun. They've never tasted oxygen. And I'm pretty sure they just cook right on down there in their, in their incredible environment if we obliterated all surface life with nuclear weapons. So life will be here and life will return because life is an emergent property and emergent properties must emerge so life will be here we're not going to destroy the planet but if we destroy essentially the entire ecosystem that we have here uh i, I think i i believe one possible outcome is that we could literally destroy it down to microbes um that we could pretty much take care of, of all the uh, 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 things with backbones on. And, uh, <clears throat> because, like I said, we're, we're attacking the bottom thing on the food chain. And I, I'm pretty sure if you push the bottom floor out from under this building, the rest of it's not going to stand very well. I mean, I can't prove it. I haven't done any research. But I'm pretty sure of that. So, you know, that's, that's one possibility. Another possibility is that it doesn't get quite that drastic, you know, and a few thousand people hang on or a few million people hang on and we can't read and write, we can't, you know, but, but we're still alive and we're making our entire living for, for thousands of years by mining these things that we don't know were once called landfills. And you can, you can find hot dogs in there and just eat them just like they are. It's like manna from heaven. It was written in the holy book that God Almighty placed a hot dog in the landfill that we might live. I mean, you know, it could get grim. It could get real grim. Um, I 
don't I don't see uh, any other uh, possible outcome for uh, uh, if we retain the, the current industrial uh, speed and scale and energy level um, because it's not it's you know it's about the systems and and if we don't maintain them then then we won't have them and water you know it, the thing is you can see that all these are, are intertwined because we talked about water which led us to beavers which led us onto trees which led me into wind to get the wind to slow so it doesn't destroy everything so much but the water is still involved because the trees are are moving it from in the soil up into the air and what we want is we want a water cycle that moves rapidly in small scales okay the water cycle we have now moves in huge scales so we have all this evaporation and all that energy goes up into the sky and then we have all this rainstorm and that energy comes crashing back down and Houston's gone and what we want to do is we want to have small uh, compact uh, discrete pods or, or bulbs of, of humid air form uh, not too far up in the air where the where the thunderstorms are and uh, not have too much water in them when they reach a difference point and they, they're able to rain and it's not too hard what we want to do is we want to take the systems that we have increased in scale and we want to bring them back down to a scale where the scale of our problems is not so great that it kills us in, in big crowds all at the same time. But it is still, it, you can't break it apart. I've taken these two pieces out and used them to illustrate a, a biological solution. But I've just brushed all over, you know, how land management would have to happen in order for all these tree lines to get built, and and, and the the scale of farming equipment that you'd have to have to be able to farm between all the tree lines. See, this is how it was when people were farming with horses. All the tree lines were already there, and all the small fields were already there in this part of the country. I mean, they weren't down in Oklahoma. That's why you know Missouri didn't blow away during the Dust Bowl. A place that blew away down in the Dust Bowl was, was down in Oklahoma, where it's arid country. There weren't very many trees to start with, and they, and they didn't keep any of them. There was nothing to hold the soil together. Up here in Missouri, um, all the pictures from the Dust Bowl, you know, there's all these little bitty farms and all these guys out here with, with uh, uh, two mules. And We actually had a, a different ecological disaster in Missouri than they had during the Dust Bowl. We had all these people on the ground with no knowledge of how to care for it in such a way that it would produce for them forever and use the fruit and not plant the seed corn, not spend the capital, I don't care what you preferred. I mean, all the things that we wouldn't do if it was business, they're what we always do on on the planet which created and sustains us and um yes this ecosystem did create us i i don't that's that's it that's all uh, on that topic and uh i lost my place so missouri was covered as i was saying before i did lose my place with small farms and People were farming with animals. This sounds like exactly what I'm recommending now, right? And we had our own little ecological disaster here because uh, the small farms and the small farmers uh, burnt all the forest so that they could get ash into the ground, which would give them fertility. And they killed all the uh, white-tailed deer and they killed all the, the turkeys and they killed, they killed most of what was here that you could eat that lived in the woods because it was the Great Depression and nobody had any jobs and there was no money floating around and these people didn't have any knowledge of 
of land husbandry. And so they came out here into Missouri with horses and mules and horse-drawn machinery and axes and, and uh, buck saws and biologically powered machinery. Everything I seem to be recommending. And they just ripped this ecosystem to shreds. And the biggest thing that saved it was World War II and all these guys got sucked off the land. And the land wasn't quite dead yet. And it gasped for breath and the earth heals itself uh, in a fashion not unlike uh, an acknowledged to be living system. And so uh, those arcs began to heal and Missouri began to heal. Um, but they had to reintroduce whitetail and they had to reintroduce turkeys and, and uh, there still aren't any bears here and they had to reintroduce elk. And, you know, they in the, in the last 40 years, 50 years, they've done a great deal to mankind, people, the state of Missouri, our government, with our tax monies, which I have voted to see spent like this, have done a lot to restore living things to the ecosystems in which they evolved. And um, this, is, this is helping the earth heal because it needs all these things. We have other lunatics who are out here introducing pigs so they can hunt them. And their hogs are almost as destructive to an ecosystem as we are. So it's not just a matter of, of some uh, uh, airy-fairy hippie dream of, of back to the land and we all go uh, buy ourselves a, two horses and, and a walking plow and get back on the land. It's much more difficult than that. Because as I've been talking this evening, going around with how we need to introduce both the beavers and trees in their proper spot in the ecosystem to cure a problem and how that introduction would in fact, in scientific fact, uh, ameliorate the effects of global warming in America right now today without reducing our carbon uh, wasting with anything, we could ameliorate the effects of global warming here in the United States for cheap, but it would require a shift of mindset, and that's what we don't appear to be able to make. If someone made a podcast like this and recommended doing this with magic machines, he'd get 100,000 listens, but that won't work, and this will. Because the earth is the given reality. The ecosystem is the reality. And everything else, everything else is uh, in some way an illusion. Because if it can't reproduce itself, if it can't heal itself, if it can't fix itself, it can't help us either. We need to solve our problems with the living forces of our planet Earth. And to those forces, we need to apply all the research, all the intelligence, and all the wisdom that we can possibly bring to bear on this question. Thank you.